Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about After Sun, the 2022 directorial debut from Charlotte Wells. And my guest is the film's editor, Blair McClendon. Blair, welcome to Below the Line. Thanks for having me. Blair, very excited to have you here today. Joining me in the co-host chair this week is Christopher Angel, longtime Hollywood editor and regular guest of the podcast. Chris, great to have you on with us today. Thanks, Kid. It's great to be here, and it's great to have you on board, Blair. Thank you for joining us. A quick warning for listeners. Today's conversation will contain spoilers for the film, and this is a great film. So if you haven't already seen it, I recommend you check it out. It's currently streaming on Showtime and Paramount+. Plus. And you can rent it on Amazon for like four bucks. It's well worth it. In case you're not already convinced, let's set a little context. Chris, you join me every year on the podcast to talk about the Oscar nominees for film editing. When I asked you what worthy films didn't make the list for 2022, you named After Sun. I did indeed. Yeah, it really stuck out to me last year, um, particularly from the editing point of view, which is how I tend to try to analyze these films. But, um, you know, it just it, it tried to do something different. I think we're always looking for films that seem fresh and different. And it, it to me, broke some rules that we'll talk to Blair about, I guess, what the approach was as we go. Um, but at the end of the day, just built and built. And I, I had a very strong emotional reaction, you know, as a father. So I really like that stuck with me and I, I couldn't forget the movie. So I'm excited to talk more about how it got made. Yeah. And Chris, and while I hadn't seen the film at the time, our conversation stuck in my head. And when I finally did screen it in mid-2023, I was really moved. So Blair, you're sitting here with a couple of fans. <laughs> Maybe you can introduce us to the film by talking about how it came together. Yeah. Uh, um, Charlotte and I, the director of the film, we've known each other, I guess, about 10 years now. Uh, we both went to the same film school and <clears throat> we both liked each, other work, each other's work, but hadn't worked together at first. And then, gosh, it must have been in the second year, maybe the summer between them, uh, asked if I would do a pass at a short film she was making called Laps, um, which we did like very last minute just before the deadline for submissions to Sundance. Um, and it got in uh, and we've worked together on all of her stuff since then, her next short and then After Sun. Um, I can't remember exactly what the public claim is for how many years she was working on it, uh, but it's been a while. Um, and then much like everybody else in this industry got pushed because of the pandemic. Um, in early 2020, we were supposed to shoot that summer. Um, and that was, yeah, the original plan for that. Obviously that did not happen. And so we pushed a little while later. Um, it's, you know, I mean, I've, I've worked sort of with people in different capacities between doc and fiction and sort of at different stages of it. Uh, most often I don't know about a project this early from like when they're thinking about writing a script. Um, so this is always like working with Charlie has always been different for that reason. Um, and Charlie is like very capable in an edit room. Um, and we have now, I don't know how many years uh wow seven years i hadn't thought about that seven years of working together i guess um but there's a lot of shorthand now that like you don't need to pass through because i do know more or less what she's after and i think she knows more or less what i'm likely to do and did you have conversations with her before she even went and, and filmed yeah i mean so there's like a group of us that came out of film school who are all friends and collaborators and have worked on a bunch of each other's things um like the very the last short film i shot charlie produced greg who shot charlie's movie shot that movie uh another friend of ours harry chepka did a feature five years ago that charlie produced greg shot i edited um so there's been like a circle of us who have kept working together and there's like a larger circle than those people too um so before they shot, yeah, I mean, I was like talking with them a bit about it. Um, we also, it was Charlie's first feature as a director. It wasn't my first feature editing. It wasn't Greg's first feature shooting. I think it was like his second or third. Um, but some of the like conversations we had were just very 
like blunt ones where they were like, what are the obvious things everybody forgets to do that are really annoying for you? Um, so like we had conversations about that, but there was also just like, Charlie said it once, which is I think one of the benefits of us having all worked together for so long is our interests and tastes have sort of evolved with each other. Um, so I think a lot of it was also just like, you know, I remember a long time ago being very excited about Edward Yang because he never made a bad movie and that's pretty cool. Um, and I can't even remember what year this was, but Greg saw a bunch of his movies with me and Charlie saw a bunch of them. Um, so a lot of the conversations I would say weren't even necessarily about like, how do we make After Sun? Uh, they were more just about like, what's the sensibility that we're all interested in um, and how do you do those things? Uh, and Greg put together like an incredibly good pre-shooting document um, that just had lots of little videos in it as references and lots of things in there. And so we went through those and talked through that stuff. Um, but I think a lot of it was just, we've all, I don't think any of us would ever make the same thing, but have been headed in more or less the same direction. And I think a lot of the conversations were more like that. I mean, the one I remember most distinctly when we were cutting was when we were trying to figure out how long you're supposed to pace interstitials. Uh, and so then we watched the beginning of Floating Weeds because I was like, there's some good interstitials at the beginning of Floating Weeds. And we were in London sitting in the edit room and I was like, let's just watch the first like five minutes. And then we just sat and watched the whole movie for the first two hours <laughs> of the day. Uh, which, you know, if the producers are listening, we didn't do. We like worked. Really <laughs> uh, but I do think it was actually like one of the, in a practical way to answer the question we had, but also I think is how we work together a lot. It's just a lot of like, oh yeah, you know that one thing? Let's like attempt to be kind of as good as that. Oh, that's great to hear. Because yeah, I think sensibility is a great way to describe one of the things that attracts me to this movie. Like it has a clear vision. And so to hear that you guys were talking about it up front makes a lot of sense. And something I think for the filmmakers out there to sort of listen to, like yeah, if you can, if you happen to know who your editor is, like involve them early and get them understanding what the vision is. So that's great. Yeah, I think that's that's really true. I mean, I've come in at like lots of stages. Like, you know, I've been like a finishing editor for a project that's already almost done. And I've come in like right after shooting or like been talking to them while they're shooting. Um, but I do think you can like save a lot of time by having those conversations earlier. I mean, sometimes for practical reasons, like the ability to say, do you think you have this shot, but you don't. Um, but I think also just getting people on the same page for where it is you're heading um because i think that's like that's where you're actually burning a lot of time in the edit room is just trying to get both of you to comprehend where it is you're heading exactly so talking of the shoot where where was the shoot and where were you i know it was the pandemic time so how did that work and and when did you start actually editing it and how did you get the footage it's a father and a daughter going on a vacation to Turkey, um, which is where they shot it. Uh, I wasn't there, which was a real bummer for me. I thought I might get a free vacation. I did not get a free vacation. Um, but so I was I was back in New York. They were shooting on 35. Um, and so I was getting scans about 24 hours after they would shoot. Um, which was like for the we actually didn't run into that many problems with that. It was like pretty much fine. I started maybe a week after they started shooting just because of some other scheduling things. Um, and then was like going along with them as, as they were shooting. Uh, and it is a pretty simple story. Um, and like the script, there's lots of stuff that's not in the movie that's in the script, but in terms of like, you read that script and maybe you didn't see exactly this movie, but you felt it, I think, pretty clearly. And it was pretty clear how you had to do it. Um, and so, like, from the beginning, I think also because of just the people we're interested in, in terms of filmmakers and artists and stuff, we knew that, you know, there's not, we're not, like, trying to hang on some, I guess there's a reveal. Not really, uh, but we're not trying to hang on like, oh, and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens because actually nothing happens on vacation, um, which we kind of knew. And we're like, you have to use that as the point 
is that like nothing's actually happening. Uh, which, you know, I think is like, I don't think either Charlie or Greg would disagree me disagree with me that we are all drawn to films where actually nothing happens. Um, I mean, what I love about Floating Weeds is that like actually the most devastating thing is in it isn't when the young man is like, you're not my dad and like pushes his dad. But it's the very end where the man and his like former lover who we think have split up find each other in the train station in the middle of the night. And she tries to light his cigarette and he keeps moving his mouth away so the cigarette won't light. And I was like, that's pretty good. Like if you could make a whole movie really like culminate in, will you let somebody light your cigarette? You've done a pretty good job. Um, and while I will not stake a claim that this movie is as good as Ozu, uh, I do think we, there was like a similar understanding here that it was, if we can teach you to really watch these people, then very small things are going to bear a great deal of weight. Um, and so a lot of the questions we faced in this movie, I think in terms of like post-production, it wasn't hard in the sense of they shot the movie they wanted to make. Like there weren't, it's not like we took a movie that's really straight ahead and sculpted it back into this thing that is more opaque. It's like, you actually can't make the straight ahead movie out of the footage they have. Um, but it was that we knew like, we kind of have to teach you that it's going to be okay. Um, and I think a word that like kept being said in the edit room between Charlie and I was just like, the movie has to be confident um, because we recognize that like, it's a slow movie. We're mostly just like watching a dad and a little girl, like put on sunscreen um, or after sun, which I didn't know that's what after sun meant until we were almost done. One day I turned to Charlie and I was like, I just want to let you know, I don't actually know what that word means. Um, but we knew like, Oh, we have to, it's not just that we have to like, be at this slow pace, but the movie has to, feel like even if you don't know what you're doing it knows what it's doing um which like took a lot of back and forth I think because I think with even though my like the heart is often with these kind of durational movies where you're really just watching I often think the difference between the like ones that work and the ones that don't are whether it feels like the filmmaker knows what they're doing um I mean I remember seeing days I think we were still editing when I saw Days. And that opening shot of Days is just like, you know, he's looking out of the window and you see the reflection and in the half reflection from what he's looking through, there's a monsoon coming in. And I was like, okay, well, if you timed your shot to a literal monsoon, like I have to trust you for a while. Like <laughs> you bought a lot of time from me. Uh and I think we, you know, we didn't have a monsoon, which is too bad, but I think we were thinking quite similarly to that. We were sort of like, this is the thing I think I say in a lot of edit rooms is like, if we're not doing a straight ahead thing, then the question is always like, how do you keep buying yourself time? Um, and I think we just, that was a thing we really were trying to zero in on is like, what are the moments where you really like we are buying time with the audience to say no just keep watching because we are going somewhere don't worry about it um even if the place we're going isn't some big shootout um but it is like those key moments i think where we can say like you feel this and that emotion buys us now another 10 minutes or another 15 minutes or whatever um which was true there's a very long shot at the beginning um of callum the dad who's just like dancing through the window and it's very long. It's the longest shot in the movie. I think actually, I think that's correct. Uh, and you know, there was like, when we'd get feedback that said, why don't you guys cut that down? Um, Cause it's really long and all he's doing is standing out there. Uh, but I think Charlie said this first and she was totally right, which was just because we have to teach you to like watch him this closely. Um, and if you don't, if we don't say out the bat, like you need to pay a lot of attention to like very small things about this man, then actually the movie's lost. <laughs> you just won't, at which point nothing happens in the movie at all. Um, and so it was a lot of things like that. It's just how do we teach people like what the scale of the emotional terrain is here? Because um, it's not a movie where anybody's going to come out and say, 
here's how I'm feeling and what that means. Yeah, I was struck and I think both of you can go deeper onto the editing aspects of this or how it applied, but I think the movie is sometimes mischaracterized as a coming of age movie in the sense that we are very aware that she's an 11 year old having feelings and, but in watching it again, it's very much observational. It's not sort of, that's not her arc or the film's arc, these moments, but I Mm -hmm. did connect me with her and her place and it recognizes it, but it'd be a mistake to say, Oh yeah, that's what the film is trying to achieve. And again, it sounds like all of that you guys had sort of planned out in advance. Yeah, I think I get why people say it's a coming of age thing. Maybe Charlie would contradict me on this, but I doubt it. Uh, I don't really think it is. I mean, I think like people who are like just on the cusp of puberty is like people like that's a coming of age film. Um, I don't really think it is. And I guess I don't really think it is for the reason that the or for the because of the way the movie is structured, which is it's not quite true to me. Like to me, I'm like a coming of age film or like a building roman or any of these things are about the experience of an actual processing of the moment that something in particular happens. It doesn't really matter how big it is. That is the like boundary line for you between once you were a child and now you're not. And this movie actually kind of, it exists in two timelines, maybe three, but in either case, it actually exists on either side of that moment. It doesn't actually exist in the moment that something happened. Um, So I like get it because it's like as close as you can come to what a coming of age thing is. But I think like in the structure of how she wrote it and how it was shot and how we edited it, like, you know, I mean, here's the spoiler alert, but like the dad dying does not happen in the movie. Um, and we only experience it from before it happens and after it happens. Uh, and if that, like, if this movie is a coming of age movie, and if that is the thing that coming of age, we actually, just, it does not happen in the film. Um, and that wasn't even like we were clever and pulled it out. It never happened in the film. Um, and so if anything, it's sort of like, in my read of it, I think, someone's attempt to reconstitute something that happened just before that moment. Um, Which I think is like speaking to the sensibility, just sort of the sensibility of the whole thing, which is like, it's not really about explosions or like this key defining moment. It's mostly about like the tremors that come before or after something. Um, I mean, I suppose there's like some coming of age and like, she kisses a boy and is she interested in this older girl? But even then again, it's like, it doesn't really happen in the thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that was throughout, like our structure was always kind of, we're not that interested in the big dramatic moment. We're interested in the thing that comes after it um, or before it. Uh, because the moment itself, I don't know. I always, I mean, I find this like, no offense to everyone else in the entire industry out there, but it's like <laughs> the shot that I like am always just, I find so hard to actually pull off, even though it appears again and again, is a lead actor, actress crying and the camera pushes in on their face. I just, I'm like, almost every time I see it, like my gut reaction is how dare you. Um, and I think like, I know why it gets played all the time, but I actually think that's harder to pull off well than almost anything else. <laughs> Uh, and I think the flip side of that though, is like, it does give you a structure if you're trying to build to that. And in our instance, we were like, okay, like everything in this is very sad. People can't just be crying at it all the time. Um, but that did sort of force a reverse work then of like, if we're not building to these big crying moments or something, then we have to find a way to make everything else really register Um, because otherwise we wouldn't have had anything and then we would have been in a lot of trouble. So you used the word structure a number of times there, which I think is really interesting because I think the thing that attracted me to the film at first viewing was like it it broke the rules of what I'd been taught at my Mm -hmm. film school about three-act structure, (laughs) three-act storytelling, right? Clearly, like once I got past wondering like, oh, what's going to happen and just was trying to 
be in the moment with the characters like that was gone but what did you use in the editing room as like a, a structural theory to figure out like what order the scenes were in or when we saw certain things happen because i know you you said you moved things around a little bit so what what were you yeah. using to try to do that well i mean i will say that like neither charlie nor i nor greg nor honestly like uh are like terribly drawn to like answering a question about like us the story when people have that um i think all to varying degrees of stubbornness but uh i don't know my i actually don't think this is controversial i just think i'm right uh but my <laughs> opinion is that even though everybody really likes talking about stories and movies that it's not actually the story that almost anybody is ever really talking about when they say something they liked from a movie and i don't just mean like when you're watching a slow art house film uh it's like you know i grew up really liking the original star wars trilogy and if you asked me to talk about what i liked as a kid in the original star wars trilogy i would not like narrate this grand like space opera family problems blah 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 blah, blah. it's like it's Han Solo shrugging and it's like the appearance of Darth Vader and it's like you know Obi-Wan saying I'm going to be more powerful than blah 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 uh which I just think like the things that people are actually interested in is that like movies are really good at making gestures mean a lot um and even like even if you're watching a Marvel movie it's like you ask someone to say what they liked in it very rarely does somebody repeat the plot to you. Um, so, I mean, I think we came in, Charlie, <laughs> both being like, I don't care. Um, but then I think what happened is there was an obvious structure from the script, which is the movie was structured by days on this trip, um, which for like practical purposes was mostly about their outfits. Um and so there was like some ways you would get locked into a few things where you were just like, well, we can't like change their outfits four times in the next five minutes. Um, but, but there was a little more looseness there than we originally thought. I think the, like, the main thing that moved around was, you know, there's this run of scenes that take place in this sort of rave space where the older version of Sophie and the version of Callum that existed on this uh, trip are both there. And they're, she's like trying to encounter him in this rave space, which is sort of like unreal and in this maybe other timeline or reality. And so like from the beginning, we were sort of like, even though it was plotted in the script, we were like, that's gonna move around a lot. Um, and that was like, after the days were set, there's like one plot line, plot line, it's not a plot line. She learns to play pool. Uh, <laughs> that's the level of plot line on in After Sun is somebody once played pool and we got rid of the pool. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, like that got pulled, but then we were still pretty stuck in the days. Uh, so the real thing that was changing a lot and that would pretty dramatically alter how people read the movie was just like when these flashes into this rave space happened. Um, there's one that's really tied, which is uh, a camera move that gets us from um, her in the, well, it gets us from him sitting on the bed to the rave space or laying on the bed to the rave space to her in the modern day. And it's how we see that she has the same rug that he bought then. That was kind of the only one that was tied somewhere because there's a camera move that we would break if we moved it somewhere else. Um, and it was the only time we did that kind of camera move. So there really was no other reason to have it anywhere else. Uh, but outside of that, a lot of those things could move pretty much wherever. Um, and that was our like biggest structural question because if you took too long without it, people just forgot about it. And then it just felt really weird and cheap when it came back. Um, and if they were too close together, it just felt like we were asking you to learn something about this place when we really weren't. Um, and then a few things started shifting after that. I mean, the biggest, 
I think like shift happened within a day, uh, which is the montage about we all live under the same sky or we both live under the same sky, um, which used to be a full day. Uh, so it was probably like 15 minutes. Um, and actually it was good. Like there was a lot of good stuff in there. I think like one of our favorite scenes exists in there. Uh, but it was just, it broke the rhythm of the movie. Um, which I think like, I'm going to put myself out of work by saying this, but, uh, <laughs> like whenever somebody's like, oh, we want you to be a story consultant, you know, I often take the job, but I am like, I don't actually know what a story is, but I do know what rhythm is. Uh, and I feel like mostly when I wind up being a story consultant, I have no notes on the plot. I am just like the rhythm's off here. So maybe you should fix that. Um, and that's what I think was the issue here was just like, it was really messing with the rhythm of the movie and it was too early and we couldn't recover from it. Uh, and so I just took this monologue that she had wisely like written, I think like the day of a day before, um, because she's like a very good filmmaker in the sense of recognized she might need a piece of something later. Uh, and we just went back and recut basically that whole day to the monologue as though the monologue was a piece of score um which like really contracted the whole section but also let us just like keep moving uh because something we realized was like the back end of the movie i don't think i'm like betraying any secrets of the edit room by saying this but we always like we really liked the back end of the movie and we were sort of like if everything had gone really well and we were as good as Ozu, then like those last few days, it's like we just, we hit the pace and everybody did what we wanted. And we were like, okay, so what we kind of have to get to is that stuff. Um, which then meant we had to work backwards sort of from two things, which is one, how do we build a movie where that rhythm is what we are headed towards the whole time. And then the obvious one was also, we're going to immediately break this and have a massive blowout dance sequence. And so like, that's got to not come out of nowhere. Um, and I think that that's really about the placement of the rave scenes. And then the things like figuring out where we could contract and move days around was mostly just about like, how do we build to this pace that is the ideal one for us? Uh, without breaking it too much because it's the, the real worry was sort of if we move too fast in the beginning then it'll feel like the movie is slowing down dramatically and sort of what we really needed was like it should feel like the movie is actually at the same pace the whole time and then it explodes uh which it's not but it meant like we really had to figure out how to keep modulating days so that you didn't notice that actually we're like contracting a great deal at the beginning and speaking of the beginning, can you um, talk about the choice of how to open the movie? <laughs> and then, I mean, I, so I don't know if you had multiple choices there or not, or tried different things. And then uh, maybe that will lead you into also maybe talking about camcorder footage and how that plays in the whole movie. Yeah, we, um, I mean, the thing I've like always said whenever I have to talk about working with Charlie is like, that the shorthand for explaining how we work differently is I care a lot about endings and she cares a lot about beginnings. Um, not to say we don't both care about the other ones, but like, I just care much more about the ending. Um, and the opening, like we knew a few things were just true, which was we kind of have to hit the rave as soon as possible. Um, because, you know, it's like, you can do anything you want at the beginning of a movie. Uh, but once the movie starts, like, the, your options are getting narrower. Um, and we knew like we couldn't start the movie and it feels like this slow observational naturalistic film. And then we jump into this rave space because everyone would be like, you're awful. Um, so that was sort of baked in that we're just like, it has to start in the rave. Um, we also kind of knew it for a very strict, again, like, the level of plot is that we're like, you need to recognize these two people. But we were like, we well, do need to like establish quickly that like older woman, girl, same person. Um, which some people didn't get for a really long time. And then I think Charlie at one point was just like, what if just the very last frame of the rave is her? And then 
the very next frame as the little girl and it worked and nobody ever asked us again. Um, but the beginning, beginning where it starts with the camcorder footage came actually pretty late. Um, somebody else who gave us notes suggested it. We were very resistant to it. Uh, and then we tried it and it worked. Um, which was helpful because like, I mean, that was a, so the opening broadly speaking of like, I don't know, the first 25, 30 minutes, like I would say the real struggle of that was mostly that we were like, we need to tell you that this movie is going to be slow and nothing's going to happen and that's okay. And we need to tell you that this rave space exists and it's not real and that's fine too. And we need to introduce this camcorder footage um and you need to have some sense that like this is a memory um and i think what was difficult for a while was nailing i mean we always knew the camcorder footage was there but was nailing like how soon can you place it where if it, it where it won't feel like we're saying we're always going to be switching back and forth between these things um because we knew like the bulk of the movie is always going to be in this memory on 35 watching this little girl and her dad. Um, but we knew that the camcorder stuff just like had to be in there. Um, I mean, in part, like I think what, I mean, other than when she's holding it, um, what was kind of interesting about it is they made a very concerted decision when they were shooting, which was, there is never going to be a point of view shot that is from Callum's point of view, um, which sort of then meant as a result that actually the only true point of view from Callum is when you are watching camcorder footage that he's holding the camera of, um, which he was really doing. Like they just gave the camera to Paul and Frankie and were like, go do stuff. Um, and so that was sort of like, one, I think it offered us a sort of way out, which is that the whole movie is like quite melancholic. Um, but I think what a lot of the camcorder footage really did for us is allowed us to like have variations in the tone of the film. Um, because most of the camcorder footage isn't that melancholic other than maybe when they're sitting by the water. Um, and so it was like very helpful for us to be able to drop in like, okay, yes, this is a woman in her thirties remembering her father and remembering this time, but the little girl then is actually having a fine time. Um, and I think that was really important to us was how to make both of those experiences be running at the same time, which is that even as you're watching it, like if you've seen enough movies, which we were always like, whenever we got too many notes about like, what people understand, I was like, a very specific kind of person is likely to see this movie and they've seen several other movies. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we were like, look, if you've seen enough movies, there's something about like the air in the room here and the pacing of the thing and the looks people are giving that we are saying like pretty quickly, even if we don't say what it is, like, uh-oh. Uh, and so we were like, but that has to, like your knowledge that this seems quite melancholic can't be imbued in the present tense of like this character who's actually having a perfectly fine time. Um, and I think that was like where a lot of this camcorder footage helped. Um, I mean, it's where like, also just that they're both very good actors <laughs> really helped. Uh, but a lot of it was that was just figuring out like, how do we make the movie's tone not the tone of the performances? Um, because, Ca I mean, Callum can be a little more down, but I think it's like, it's very easy when you're in sort of this melancholic tone to say everybody in it is experiencing this thing. Um, and we really wanted it to be clear that it's like, no because she is remembering this, there is an overlay of this sensation, but anything they're actually looking at is fine. Uh, which I think is why it helped that we like opened and closed, uh, although it's like in the sort of credits thing, but with her just like waving and being very happy and very silly and goofy with her dad, um, is that we are like, oh, right, we need to like, as often as we can explain, she's having a fine time. I mean, like, yeah, the older kids are a little annoying and like her dad's a little annoying, but like 
she has to be feeling something separate, which I think is why the end works more or less is it's where actually the two tones come together. And before that, we've kept them separate. The massive spoiler alert now, but let's, <laughs> since you bring up the ending, uh, since we talked about the beginning, can you talk about um, the ending and, and did you, again, did you guys have discussions? Like were there uh, multiple versions or options for the ending or was that always the shot that was scripted? Um, no, that's not the scripted shot. Um, so I guess it depends on where people count the ending as starting. Uh, I think most people say the ending is like they start at the dance sequence. The David Bowie dance in yeah. in Turkey. Yeah. And so that, I mean, like the dance sequence was always there. Charlie claims that she didn't remember until we were months into the edit that she also ended her last short film with a dance sequence. And I was like, oh, that's crazy because I just thought we were doing the exact same thing again. <laughs> um, but that was always there. It wasn't always set to that she like brought it in one day as like a wouldn't this be funny and then we watched it and we're like funny in the sense of that's the movie now yeah sure um and so we always knew like we're building towards this big moment we're building towards this big moment uh but i think the question was always on the other side of that um and so yeah so it's like that's the moment where we like we get out of the dance sequence we're thrown back into this camcorder footage um, of her leaving to get in the airport to fly back to the UK. Um, and then there's this like reveal in the camera move that we're actually not watching the camcorder footage. We're watching a screen playing it. Camera pans around to her watching and then pans around and we do like a very classic crossfade on a white wall so that now we're in the airport again where the dad is um, filming where she just was. So we're sort of cheating it as a uh, shot reverse shot, except put into a 360 degree pan. And he walks out into the, um, what now it seems to be a rave space. Uh, but as scripted, no, the shot can keep going. Um, and the camera can come back around. We had a few different options, like obviously performance options for him, performance options for her. There are different ways that that very last shot could be. Um, I think, yeah, like I, I felt pretty strongly about two possible endings and in the same way that like Charlie would spend days just like checking the frames in the opening. Uh, I think the only time I was truly adamant was about the ending, um, which is that I was like, I think you can either end this film, there's that like beautiful shot, uh, where older Sophie is like looking over her shoulder and it's like the light flashes on her face and then it goes to black. And I was like, you can end there if you want to end in the rave. Um, or you can end on Callum walking into darkness, but you can't come back around to Sophie because Callum walking into darkness is too good. Um, and like my feeling was just that like, I don't know, this is the thing why I care a lot about endings is I don't think I'm ever after like, making a perfect film. I mean, there's a lot of movies that I often say like are perfect and they're not necessarily my favorites. Um, like I do think The Godfather is a perfect film in the sense of, I don't think you can improve it and make the same film. Um, and it's beautiful and I'll watch it. Uh, and seeing it in a theater on 35 was like magnificent. But also if you ask me to list my favorite films, it would take a while before I got to The Godfather. Um, and so I'm not often after that. And so I think as a result, a thing I often feel is like the point of a movie is that you can keep making up for the parts that don't work, uh, which is why I care a lot about the endings because you can't make up for that one because now the movie's over. Um, and as a result, I think my feeling is always like the last shot should be like pretty good, uh, possibly your best shot if possible. Um, and I just, yeah, I think like that shot of him walking into darkness is I was just like that's like that's all we've been saying for the last 90 minutes so we might as well just say it and stop um and I think there was some like back and forth in part because of like how it's scripted and then like lots of input about what we're trying to say at the very end and I thought the most compelling counter 
to where I thought we should end it um, was if we ended on Callum, are we making it Callum's movie? Um, I recognize that as a real thought, I think, because a lot of people do read movies by the end. Um, but my feeling was that I was like, if we make this movie Sophie's movie up to this moment, then even this shot is in fact her memory and it's fine. Um, and that if this makes the movie Callum's movie, then the problem's actually in the body of the film because we already made it Callum's movie. Um, which like, you know, we got that note a lot when we were cutting it. And then I remember Greg or DP at one point was like, I think most of the scenes you guys have, you're ending on Callum. Um, and so we went back and did a pass where all we did was try not to end on Paul's face. Uh, and we never got the note again that, oh no, it's Paul's movie, um, which was like a very small thing to do, but secured it. And so then, yeah, once we got to the end, I was just like, it's just not his movie. Like it is Sophie's and that's the strongest shot we have. And I think is also the one where it's like, and similar to how that's the moment where I think the two tones come together it is the moment that's asking you most directly to just like feel what Sophie is feeling. Um, Cause elsewhere, I think because we're a little more observational, it's like, you might be feeling it because that's what it's triggering in you, but the movie's not like demanding it of you. Um, and I think that is, yeah, that's the one moment where we're like, you now feel what Sophie feels at this exact moment. Or you just like, don't like people and that's fine too. I was going to say, I was pretty sad. I, I like, I, I teared up. <laughs> well, it was funny because it's like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know this, but it's just like, you work on these things for so long. You watch all the footage for so long. Like nothing actually makes you feel anything anymore. Um, which was one of our rules is that we were like, any scene or sequence or run where you still feel something after four or five months, we were like, okay, like those are no longer negotiable. Like, if we actually still feel something from that, like that thing stays, um, which I remember for me, it's the shot. Uh, they're getting up early in the morning to go to work or not to go to work. There's no work to go on the bus trip. And he's filming her with a camcorder and the phone rings and he drops it and you can't see anything at all anymore. Um, it's just like grainy image on the screen and you hear them talking and she's very sleepy. Um, and one, I just like when you can't actually see anything in movies, but I was also just like, right, the sound of a sleepy little girl's voice is like, it does something and it tells you exactly where you are. Um, and so I think like, that was like one of the few that I was like, I'm fighting for that. Like, I we can't lose that. Uh, but yeah, it was like, I don't think it was until the premiere, like the lights came up and people were sobbing and Charlie and I were like, oh, right, it's sad. I forgot about that. <laughs> It's so interesting to hear because I think what you said at the beginning that this is a movie as much about like a feeling and these moments of the characters. So it's like how, you know, as you're editing, you're watching these things over and over again over a long period of time. So it's again, how do you, how do you have the confidence? I think that you mentioned, how do you have the confidence that it's working? Right. How do you know? I mean, you know, you need a healthy level of arrogance, which I think we had, um, but I also think part of it was that I think we really trusted. Well, one is I will say, which I don't think it's like that much of a secret to anybody. Like none of us thought the movie was going to do as well as it did. Um, we all thought it was kind of a small film for like a few people who like feeling sad. Um, and I think our confidence was mostly that we were like, one is that they're good actors um, and not just like in their being dramatic or something, but I think they're both very good at a very hard skill, which is you can see them thinking, um, which like let us rest in a place for a pretty long time. Uh, but I think in terms of like being quite confident about that, it's that I think we like, we, really trusted people's ability to recognize like the 
like the sort of pricks that bring about an emotion. And so, you know, it's like, I think, I always think of uh, when she's like, when he says sorry to her in the mud baths and she's sort of like, it's okay. And he's like, it's not okay. And then she just like says, I'm gonna give this big plop of mud for your big back. And it's like very sweet. And she's actually sort of saying something that feels like a little younger than an 11 year old. Um, but really reads to me as like, oh, you like you just do understand like a child's attempt to play the grown up, but like they only have a certain set of ways to express that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's like, I think we just, we were trusting, I guess, that if we show you the thing that incites the feeling that that's gonna go further than just showing you the big feeling. Um, and I think like, this is where, why I get why people say coming of age too, which is like, that is a moment that a lot of like very tiny memories are like locked into your brain. Um, and I also think to be honest, it's like, I don't know, I guess this gets back to what I was saying about like, actually people don't remember the stories of most movies. Uh, you know, it's like I was, we were chatting once I remember while we were cutting um about the impulse to sort of really just have somebody say the thing and I was like right but like people have been saying here's looking at you kid now for like 70 years <laughs> uh and it's because <laughs> I love you doesn't mean anything <laughs> but like here's looking at you kid means a lot uh and that was like something I think we were I mean one of my big and most annoying statements is that I'm always like almost every art house gesture now is actually just like what if we did what they did in Hollywood in the 40s and 50s uh and it, you know it's pretty good they were pretty good at it then uh and I think it is a lot of that but it's like you don't need them to do the thing you just need it to be recognizable and like I do recognize the kind of guy who doesn't say I love you but says something very close to it um just in the same way that it's like yeah you do recognize why you just really would not want to be singing karaoke with your daughter on this vacation in Turkey after you've had, you know, four beers. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it was just that. I was like, if we just give you the thing that gives you the memory of that feeling, it'll actually probably go further for us than just like, here's somebody being sad. That's awesome. Thank you. The, um, there's another big topic that you've touched on briefly, but I'd love to hear more specific thoughts about, which is sound design. We, I, mm. I assume, again, as a, as a picture editor, you were doing a lot of sound design as you did the offline edit, the first edit. But clearly the movie like plays with sound and then with silence a lot. And then also maybe you can talk about music, both source music and cues. Yeah. So what, what was what was your thinking there? What was the process of developing that? Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I've like always been very, very interested in sound. Um, I mean, I remember years ago, Charlie was always said to maybe to me or to somebody else, I can't remember, but it was just like, oh yeah, like one of the real reasons to hire Blair is like you get a free sound designer along the way. Um, so that's like always been something that I think has leapt to mind first for me. Um, I remember getting in this uh, dispute with a cinematographer friend of mine who was, you know, going on and on about some beautiful images or something. Um, and he's just like, yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's an audiovisual medium. And I was like, right. And the word audio comes first. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, I think like from the beginning, it was like very clear that like, it's a quiet movie, which means lots of sounds are going to like be really prominent. Um, but a big thing we really were thinking about was just the environmental sounds. Um, I mean, like I'm always thinking about the sound of those insects that are like buzzing towards the very end when they're in like the weird um, arena. And that, well, actually there's a scene that's not in the movie, but you hear them <laughs> there again as well. Um, and the same thing of like the sound of steam when they're in the sauna. Um, it's like, yeah, when I think about the sounds in this movie, I'm often thinking about like very specific environmental sounds. Um, like in some ways, I think the like most important sound design thing we did when we were putting together the cut was just when Callum swims out into the water far enough that you can't see him anymore. 
we were just like, oh, the sound of the waves should get louder here, um, which actually didn't happen for a fairly long time into the cut. Uh, and it's like, you know, it's like every editor knows this trick of like a loud sound goes to quiet. Uh, but there was something of just like, oh, we're holding on this shot for a very long time. He's not coming back. He doesn't appear. He doesn't appear. And actually, it, like for a long time, it felt like you had to cut earlier. And then I realized, no, you can actually hold the shot for a pretty long time if the only thing that changes is that the waves are getting louder. Um, and so it was a lot of that, to be honest, was like these very minor things. I mean, I remember us like spacing out the sound of dripping water over one of the shots. Um, it was a lot of that. And like, yeah, we did we did a lot of that work to begin with. I mean, then we had like incredible sound design work. Uh, but a lot of it, we were just like, oh, we have to be able to see it because like the length of these shots is going to be partially determined by what is happening in the sound. Um, so we did a lot of that. The score, well, there's two things that are happening in the music, I guess. One is there's a lot of 90s Britpop, um, which... I like similar to sound design stuff. I think frequently people are like, oh, if we bring Blair on, he like knows all this music and he will do a lot for us with music. Um, I don't know anything about 90s Britpop. Um, you know, I like briefly was, I remember Charlie at one point was talking about, actually I got in trouble on a different podcast because I talked about a scene that had Oasis in it. And she was like, Oasis isn't in the movie. And I was like, yeah, they are. They're in that one scene. And she's like, no, they haven't been in that sequence for like a year. And I was like, I don't actually know who I is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> so, yeah, I mean, more or less, I didn't know what any of those songs were, um, which I actually think kind of helped in this instance, which is Charlie knew all of those songs had like emotional attachments to each and every one of them, as I'm sure I would for similar music from the same time from here. Um, and I think what was helpful between the two of us was she could really bring like a, this is what this song means, like culturally. Um, and at the same time that, because I like was quite dispassionate about it, I was just like, well, here's a song that I think works here. Um, and so it was like easy to come together on like, okay, right. Like you can actually give a sense of, are we implying something because of how this song exists in the cultural sphere? Um, and then I can also bring sort of a counterweight of like, guys, like, I know this means a lot to you, but actually it doesn't read on the screen. Um, there's a few built-in things. Like she always knew that blur sequence, blur, somebody I learned about uh, <laughs> making this movie. She always knew that sequence was there. Um, we played a bit with chop, chopping and screwing it while we were in the thing, which I think is like my go-to. I don't know what to do with this song. I guess I'll chop and screw it and we'll see what happens. Uh, and then the score, we were all, we played around with a lot of stuff. Um, our temp score was Eliane Radig, who's this like great French woman. She's now fairly old, but does a lot of drones and stuff. Um, because we were like, it has to be something that is not operating on the same wave on the same wavelength as like yeah, nineties Britpop. Um, and then we brought Ollie in, which was like really lucky because he's really really good and sort of immediately understood what we were talking about. Because um, I think it would have been pretty easy to settle for the score is all of our source cues because there's a lot of them. Um, but I think we were always pretty worried that it's like, I don't know, it's very hard because on the one hand, movies for financial reasons really don't like to have the actual music playing all the time. And Charlie and I are both big believers of the thing about pop music, as annoying as it might be, is that it's like, it actually is either that song or it's nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and when you get like sound alikes, I'm just like, no, things actually don't sound alike. Uh, it is that song or it's nothing. Um, you know, it's like, there's nothing I hate more in a movie than something that's supposed to sound like a famous rap song. And I'm just like, no, actually 50 Cent's voice is 50 Cent's voice. Like I do know the difference and they mean very different things. Uh, and so we knew that stuff needed to be in there, but then the danger of it is like any pop song really threatens to overpower your whole movie. Um, which we knew we were playing with fire because we were like, we are going to end with one of the most famous songs of all time. Uh, and I think it was the score and Ollie and like thinking about sort of drones 
that help us be like, there has to be something happening in the sound here that says, no, actually we are always in control of what is happening in the soundscape here. And like, yes, we can drop literally David Bowie's voice in here, but it's actually still our movie. It's not his. Um, and so that was, I think that was a really big part of it was just like that sound. Yes. It helped us like set certain tones, but it was also just that it's like, you have to do something that is counteracting. Like, you know, I've learned blur is very famous. Uh, <laughs> and it was like, we have to counteract that we are about to drop apparently an incredibly famous song uh and people will think about that and it's like no we have to make tender ours not theirs and we have to make david bowie's voice ours not david bowie's um so yeah i mean i think that's like we were sort of always thinking about with the score which is just where can it really be doing what we want to do and also like teaching you that the music is playing because that's what's happening here not because we just think it should be playing because people like that song which is also why like I mean, they did a great job in the sound design for the end when we were like, we need to be able to strip it down to just their vocals and it needs to like find a way to bleed into our score. Um, Cause we knew we couldn't quite get away with like literally just David Bowie's voice. Cause it's David Bowie and like, you'll just lose. Um, so I think at every time with the score, we were really just like, the score is setting a certain emotional tone, but mostly it's that we need something that encapsulates this or else it's like, yeah, I mean, Chubbawamba, again, I've heard it's very famous. And I think it's like a lot of people, you know, we would play the movie for Brits and everybody was like, yeah, this thing means so much. And I was like, I believe you. I, you, you tell me that. I have to assume it's true. Although I wouldn't be surprised now if some of them came back and were like, we don't know those songs. And I'd be like, that's fine. Blair, you mentioned earlier about how the creative team approached it as a small film that might be enjoyed by and you were a small number of people who want to feel sad. But the film has done much more than that. Uh, Charlotte Wells won uh, at the DGA for first time director. Um, the film's gotten a, a number of awards throughout. And again, a much larger distribution. A lot more people are seeing it. Talk to us a little bit about that experience and what that meant for the film overall. Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, regardless of, of its actual run, you take a look at the film and yeah, it's about a Scottish dad and his daughter who go on vacation and she remembers some things. Um, it's hard to say those words and be like, I think this is gonna have a pretty big run and Paul's gonna get nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think in part of it is just, you know, I mean, personally, I just found that quite, freeing um like whenever somebody's like do you want to come off of this and edit just like a massive movie uh my real thought is always that it's like well i want to edit something good but there are a lot of other external fears and considerations that come in the bigger it gets um and i think what was nice about this one is in some ways we were both protected by that fact and also protected ourselves from that fact, which is just that we're like, look, it's a small movie. Um, you know, if somebody really hates it, I'll just be like, well, that's weird. Cause it was 92 minutes. Like, why are you so mad? Um, and I think on the other side, it really sort of protected like all of the artists involved in this to just say, you have to just make the movie you're trying to make. Um, because we weren't, you know, it's not a four tent poll movie. We weren't sitting here being like, oh gosh, if we include this scene, are we going to lose boys 13 to 22 or something? So I was like, I don't know. <laughs> not the ones who walk into the theater, I guess. But I think what that meant in the process of making it is, you know, I don't want to like undersell this. We weren't like confused about where this movie stood like it's an independent film but it's not you know a friend of mine that we all worked on the same project he scraped together like twenty thousand dollars and we shot a feature in 13 days um and this wasn't that like you know we knew who was backing it and we had paul in it like we weren't confused about like no the movie's like trying to be seen by somebody um but at the same time i think like 
I mean, we said it to each other at one point. I mean, I think Charlie wouldn't begrudge me because especially now that it doesn't matter uh, that we joked, but it wasn't really a joke that we were like, yeah, I think there's movies for like 12 people and we probably know six of them. Um, which I kind of think is just mostly how you should make movies is assume you know the six people you're making the movie for uh, and hope it works for them. I don't think anybody involved, ha I think we all had this idea that it's like, it's a legible festival movie. It can play, people can watch it, blah, blah, blah. But none of us had some idea of it's going to have a really big run and Charlie's going to win this DGA award and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, I think in some ways it struck at the right time um, I also think Charlie just like really committed to the things she wanted to do with it. Um, and I think it is always like quite, especially if it's a first feature from somebody quite refreshing when you're like, oh, somebody's trying to do something, uh, rather than like trying to demonstrate that they can do the thing everybody does. Um, so I think there was a lot of that, that really backed us. And then in the run, I mean... You know, I mean, I feel very lucky, which is like, if you have to go on a year long run with a film, it might as well be with like some friends you had from 10 years. Because uh, it is exhausting, like, which I know is also annoying to complain about because you're like, oh, it's so much travel for the successful film. Uh, but it's better if it's with some people like that. But I just, I don't know. I think like that's sort of the main thing I've, I felt before this movie and now have an annoying way to pretend I'm vindicated about, which is, I don't know. The thing I always say is like, I stop listening to notes and I don't mean this about Afterson. I mean, this about literally everything I've ever worked on. Uh, the moment somebody says like, I get it, but the audience won't. Um, and I'm just like, you are the audience. Like either you get it or you don't. Uh, and if you don't get it, that's fine. Um, but I think that's like, that's really something we held fast to here was just, Look, it's fine if we're only talking to a handful of people, but if those people get it, then we're fine. And it turned out we were wrong. We were talking to more than a handful of people. Uh, but I kind of think that is how you wind up doing things. You know, it's like, I think when you play for, it's like why I'm always a little wary when people say universal, because I feel like people hear it and think, how do we make this applicable to everybody? Um, and I often think the things that like, leap furthest are actually like quite specific in what they're invested in um you know it's like i mean thinking again about floating weeds it's like i'm sure there are a million things i am missing because i don't know that much about japanese theater and i don't know that much about japan at that exact moment and i don't speak the language so i can't tell you what's happening in the intonations and stuff uh but i do know what it means if you're like trying to light someone's cigarette and they keep moving so you can't light it um and I think it's that like we just we were really invested in are the people we really care about going to get it I mean I remember one time we had a um a test screening in LA we Charlie and I weren't there we were in New York um were we in New York or London I think we were in New York but there was a test screening in LA and there's like lots of feedback happening, you know, many opinions, blah, blah, blah. And there's one guy who is in the room who does VFX for very big movies. None of us knew him. I don't actually know how he wound up in this screening, but um, yeah, just does VFX for like, just think of very big movies that one would do VFX for. Uh, watches this movie, which is more or less the exact opposite of everything this man does every day. Um, and was actually the only person I think in that room who just got it, not even emotionally, but like there was lots of confusion in the room over what happened in it. And he just got it beat for beat for beat for beat. Uh, and then ended his whole thing with explaining he was the father of an 11 year old daughter. And I was like, we're done. Like <laughs> we've accomplished our task. I have nothing else to add. Congratulations to everybody. But like, that's all I needed to hear uh, was like, to me, I was just like, that was the moment that I actually felt we had been most successful is that I was like, somebody whose literal job is to not watch this movie because it contradicts everything else he does with his time, watched this movie and got it because it was talking about the exact same thing. Um, 
And I think it was a lot of that. It's like, we had to be very focused on not trying to say, how do we bring everybody into this tent and we all will get along and love it. But we were like, okay, there's like a handful of kinds of people we're talking to and let's talk to those people. And it just turns out there's more of them than we knew. On that note, we'll call it a wrap. Blair, great having you here. Really enjoyed this. Thank you. It was good. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope budding filmmakers everywhere listen to this because I think there's a lot (laughs) people can take away, even if they're not trying to make this kind of film. Like There are lessons for all sorts of different types of filmmakers in here, so I hope you can apply that to their process too. So thank you, Blair, for sharing all that. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It was fun. Filmmakers and general listeners alike, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. So, Blair, what are you working on now? Right now, I am editing a documentary directed by Brett Story and Steve Mang, who are two extremely talented documentary filmmakers, uh, that it is following the... Um, group that just unionized the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island. It's a verite film. I went like right from After Sun to that. It's like a few years of footage, but we're we're getting close. <laughs> Blair, good luck wrapping it up. My closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line.